Yo, what is happening, everybody? This is Austin coming back at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hems podcast. It has been like a while since uh, we've been able to put one out. I was on vacation, and then I was just super busy when I got back from vacation, and so I was unable to put one out on my normal two-week kind of schedule. Um, and so we are going to uh, aim at putting out one extra one this month uh, that actually relates to this one that we're doing today. So I think it's going to work out that we're going to be able to put out a couple ec- or one extra this month to uh, kind of catch up to our our uh, uh, twice monthly podcast here. So today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about um, something that I hold very near and dear to my own heart. And it is something that um, I think that a lot of people have mixed feelings about, especially in ground EMS. And that is the use of a checklist when you are performing an intubation on somebody, when you are pre-oxygenating and intubating a human being. And I know that in my own um, my own feelings and my own practice is that the use of a checklist is absolutely imperative. It is unacceptable to not use a checklist when you are intubating somebody and when you are doing certain other procedures really in um, in medicine. You have the resource available to you. You might as well use it. I would never get on an airplane with a pilot that does not use a freaking checklist before takeoff, and we should not uh, allow people to intubate other people without the use of a checklist as well. And a lot of people that I that I talk to, especially paramedics that I talk to, are very resistant to that because they feel it's almost degrading. They're like, I don't friggin' need that. I'm hella good at intubating. Um, you know, it's what a joke. Like I know I know how to do this basic skill. But a lot of them are really surprised when I say 43% of all EMS intubations result in a hypoxic event. Think about that. If we were so good at intubating people, then how come almost half of our intubations result in a hypoxic event? And I hear a lot of paramedics in California bitching that they got pediatric intubation taken away from them. And it is horrible. And I do think that that's not appropriate. But 50% almost of intubations result in a hypoxic event. That is insane. Two thirds of those hypoxic events during those intubations resulted in a hypoxia with a with a saturation at or below eighty percent for some period of time, and a quarter of all of these field EMS RSIs that resulted in a hypoxic event, a quarter of them had saturations at or below thirty six percent for an average length of two minutes. So almost half of EMS RSIs became hypoxic. And a quarter of those had SATs at or below 36% at some point during that peri-intubation phase that lasted almost two minutes. A lot of people would start to kind of scoff and say, well, paramedics just suck at intubating, but um, but that's not the case. It's not bad paramedicine, and it's not exclusive to the field. In fact, emergency department RSI intubations show that they have a hypoxia rate when you actually pull data from the monitor, have a hypoxia rate of about 36 to 40%. So pretty much like the same, I think within probably a margin of error that ED intubations and EMS intubations um, kind of suck at it, right? Like 
almost half of a patients, a third to half of all of our patients have hypoxia. In this emergency department study um, that was done actually back in 2018 to look at emergency department RSIs, 93% of the patients who had a hypoxic event during intubation did not have hypoxia prior to the procedure. So we did that to them. And does it really like matter, right? Does it like a little bit of hypoxia matter? I know for a fact, um, as a flight uh, clinician myself, that when I'm flying in a non-pressurized cabin in the helicopter and I cruise up to 10 or 11,000 feet for a period of time, um, if I put the pulse ox probe on, I've got oxygen saturations in the 70s or the low 80s. And I'm not dying, right? I'm not increasing my mortality by doing that. So does a little bit of hypoxia even matter? And the answer is, hell yes, it actually matters in our sick patients, especially in trauma patients, and especially, especially in traumatic brain injuries. If you look at the ENLS data, um, if you have a patient who has a traumatic brain injury, kind of all comers have about an 8% chance of death and 8% mortality. If they have one single incidence of hypoxia during the course of their initial care, it increases their relative mortality by about 290%. Meaning when you break it down, if your TBI patient comes in and you decide to intubate them and they get a hypoxic event during the intubation or during that peri-intubation phase, they now have about a 20% chance that they're going to die um, from 8% up to about 20%. If they have a hypotensive event during the intubation phase, during that peri-intubation phase, um, or really for any reason in their initial care, it increases their relative mortality by about 34%, meaning that if they have just a hypotensive event uh, alone, and now they have about a 25-27% chance that they're going to die. So somewhere in the 20-30% to 30 chance that they will die just from a single episode of hypoxia or a single episode of hypotension. If both are present, it now increases their relative mortality up by about 1,220%, meaning that they have a total mortality of about 45-ish percent. A 45% chance that that patient will never leave the hospital again because we didn't properly take care of them during that peri-intubation phase. So does it matter? Hell yeah, it matters. And so that's why we should be using a checklist. And I'm sorry if this is feeling a little ranty, but um, but it's something that I feel like we need to welcome um, when we talk about modern medicine. All right, so how do we avoid uh, hypoxia during intubation? So the first thing that we need to understand is that if a patient is properly pre-oxygenated and, and denitrogenated properly uh, in their alveoli, that we should have several minutes of apnea time before that patient starts to have a significant desaturation. And I think that most of us who uh, have a lot of field experience um, and have intubated several people uh, or, or lots of people uh, have never really appreciated that anecdotally. And that's because we didn't learn how to pre-oxygenate people, um, uh, then the, the I, I don't want to say the correct way because we, when we were learning how to intubate people, that was the science that was available. Um, but the science has changed now, and, and we have better information now. And so, it's not that they were we were taught incorrectly. We were just taught a certain way, and especially in um, in EMS, we develop kind of the dogma of EMS. You know, the perpetual use of backboards, despite science to to prove that we really shouldn't be using backboards. You know, and, and things like that. And, and pre-oxygenation is no different. And so, with um, you know, with the 
I guess, modern medicine, with the the modern literature that we have, we have a better way to preoxygenate than we probably learned how to do, you know, ten years ago. And it involves two pieces of equipment. First and foremost, it involves a nasal cannula, a real regular nasal cannula, not an entitled CO2 nasal cannula, a real nasal cannula at 15 liters per minute at least. If you look at a lot of hospital um, uh, data where they have an unlimited supply of oxygen, they're using 45 or 60 liters per minute through this nasal cannula, and it's 100% safe, totally fine for your patient. It doesn't harm them even a little bit. 15 liters per minute is at least a reasonable high flow number that we in EMS can use with a limited supply of oxygen to overcome any leak that we're going to have in our mask, in our bag valve mask, um, and also to provide a good amount of apneic oxygenation during the intubation as well. But if we're delivering 15 liters per minute by nasal cannula, we're giving about 60% oxygen, 60 to 70% oxygen, and we need a little bit more than that. And so we want to get as close to 100% FiO2 as humanly possible. And obviously, when we are pre-oxygenating somebody for intubation, we oftentimes are not going to have somebody who is um, spontaneously breathing a lot or cooperating with us a lot. And so if you were thinking, well, we'll just also put a non-rebreather over the top of it, that would be totally fine if you know if somebody was spontaneously breathing, we were intubating them because of some procedure or something like that, and, um, and they were able to really pre-oxygenate themselves really well. And so if we were to do that, have a nasal cannula, at 15 liters per minute, and then additionally have a non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute, we would be receiving close-ish to about 100% FiO2. And if you are giving this patient 100% oxygen, 100% FiO2, and they're spontaneously breathing, then naturally their oxygen saturation will also increase to about 100% very quickly within probably five or six breaths. But that's just not the reality, you know, when we're intubating people. And so we typically are not going to be able to use a non-rebreather. We have another device that we can use instead of a non-rebreather in order to deliver that 100% oxygen because the you know, the textbook person is like your 19-year-old overdose, but the reality is we're over, we are generally going to be intubating the, you know, the 75-year-old COPD or who has pneumonia. And so their lungs are not really cooperating and neither is their mentation. And so we're not going to be able to just use the simple non-rebreather. And so <clears throat> we find that the best tool, the best combination to use in order to intubate somebody is to use a nasal cannula and a bag valve mask, right? And so um, anytime you are pre-oxygenating somebody for intubation, instead of just grabbing your BVM, make sure to throw a nasal cannula on them first at 15 liters per minute. That is going to assure that you're actually going to be delivering somewhere close to 100% FiO2. You're going to overcome any leak that you have in that bag valve mask by giving that them that additional nasal flow through the nasal cannula. Plus, when they become apneic during the intubation, then you are going to be able to provide some measure of apneic oxygenation um, uh, during that period of time, and you're going to prolong that period where they have decent oxygen saturation. But here is the thing that I find that I have... Um, not not the most pushback with, but um, the biggest breakdown in true understanding. So a bag valve mask is essentially a murder weapon in the wrong hands. Uh, it does not it does not improve or contribute to oxygenation very well. It's a great tool to assist with ventilation, 
but it's not a good tool to assist with oxygenation, right? I mean, and when we're talking about mechanical ventilation, like we have of the last several podcasts, um, you know, the three things that improve oxygenation, we can increase PEEP, we can increase FiO2, and then we can prolong the duration of exposure to fresh gas by elongating the eye time in those more advanced vent strategies. But a bag valve mask, you increase the, you're increasing the FiO2, right, um, with a basic bag valve mask. By increasing the flow, the oxygen flow coming in through that bag valve mask, you want to put it to at least 15 liters per minute. But you're not doing anything for their oxygenation outside of increasing the concentration of gas, increasing the FiO2. So you're not actually improving their oxygenation in any meaningful way because you're squeezing, you're forcing those alveoli open for a short period of time. But as soon as your hand relaxes and that bag valve mask goes back to, or goes back to its stagnant state, um, it's, it's kind of inflated state, then all those alveoli shut again. And oxygen is not traveling across those alveolar capillary membranes if the alveoli have collapsed, have, have um, contributed to some atelectasis. And so something that we have to truly understand is that you, if you are delivering greater than 50% oxygen into a patient, greater than 50% FiO2, and the patient does not have a perfect oxygen saturation, there's really only one option for you. And it's that pulmonary shunt has to be present. Pulmonary shunt, meaning that you're putting gas into the trachea and into the bronchioles, but that gas is either not reaching the alveoli for some reason, or there is something in the alveoli that is preventing the gas from going across the membrane. And so there's some sort of blockage due to like pus or fluid, or there's atelectasis. So oxygen enters the lungs, but can't get to the meaningful portion of the alveoli. And we see this all the time, right? So um, we see it with... Um, uh, with a lot of uh, um, atelectasis due to pneumonia. So you have the blood that's coming out of the right side of your, your heart, your right ventricle, and it's satting at about 50%, and it enters into your lungs. Now, let's just envision, and this is not you know, 100% accurate physiologically, but it just makes the numbers really easy. So you have, let's say your entire left lung is completely whited out with pneumonia. So none of those alveoli are able to contribute to gas exchange, but your right lung is pretty unaffected. And so you have 50% oxygen saturation that's coming out of your right heart and into your lung. So all of the blood that passes into your right lung is going to be able to exchange gas. It's going to get rid of CO2. It's going to take on oxygen. And so as all of that blood travels through those pulmonary circuits and or pulmonary capillaries and goes into the, the pulmonary venous side, into the left side of your heart, that blood is saturating at 100%. It is 100% saturated with oxygen. But you have all of the blood that's satting at 50% that's traveling through the left side of the lung as well, right? Through the left lung. And all of those alveoli are totally like um, atelectatic or they are, um, or they're being blocked due to some like pus or fluid or, or whatever's going on with that pneumonia. And so essentially all of that um, uh, poorly saturated blood is traveling past that alveoli, but as it passes through those pulmonary capillaries in the alveoli, there's no fresh gas there. And so it passes through there and it goes back into the pulmonary venous side and into the left atria, and it is still satting at 50%. And so what happens is that the blood from the right side of the heart that's satting at 100% and the blood from the left side of the heart that is satting at 50%, that blood obviously mixes together and gets ejected out into the um, into the peripheral circulation. And then when it gets to the finger and it picks, it, and it picks up the uh, 
um, uh, or in our pulse oximeter picks up the saturation of that blood. It has, you know, half of it was 100% and half of it was 50%, so average between the two, and we see that we have an oxygen saturation on the cardiac monitor of 75%. And I can put flow, I can put 15 liters per minute of flow into that nasal cannula and 15 into that bag valve mask. All I want, I can put 30 liters of per minute of flow, 100% FiO2 into that lung all day long, but I can only saturate the blood that actually gets to fresh gas, right? Or I can only I can only saturate um, blood up to 100% if I if that concentration of gas is actually getting to the blood. And so in this particular example, where the whole left side of this person's body, their whole left lung was all atelectatic and full of pus and crap because of their pneumonia, it doesn't matter how much oxygen I'm putting into the trachea, right? It doesn't matter how much oxygen I'm putting into the mouth, it's not getting to the functional unit of the lung. And so there's only one way, there's only one thing that we can do if we're still hypoxic after putting a lot of flow into the lung through the bag valve mask. And it is that we need to add some pressure behind the flow. And there's a little four letter word that we use to do that. And it is PEEP. Simply all that PEEP does is it prevents the alveoli from collapsing between breaths and it just keeps pressure inside of the lungs between breaths, right? And so all we need to do is start to recruit those alveoli and then maintain recruitment. So it prevents that atelectasis from happening. It also increases the surface area of the alveoli, which gives more room for the oxygen to, to diffuse across the membrane. And as we recruit those alveoli really well, the actual alveolar capillary membrane itself starts to thin out a little bit, which also allows for those gases to move more easily across that membrane into the pulmonary circulation. And so PEEP is all good. And when you think about PEEP in terms of, you know, in terms of uh, um, dangerous pressures in the lungs, remember that the PEEP is the least amount of pressure that you're putting into the lung, right? We're putting, you know, 10 of PEEP into the lung or whatever we're doing during pre-oxygenation. But when you're squeezing that bag valve mask, you're putting 20 plus centimeters of water pressure into that lung. And so that is what's going to hurt those lungs, not a little tiny bit of PEEP, not 10 of PEEP. And so don't forget, the use of PEEP not only allows alveoli to open more effectively, but it also keeps them open. It prevents atelectasis between breaths, meaning that we're not going to have that atelect trauma that we get from the use of a regular, uh, what I call a basic bitch bag valve mask. Um, but also it gives more time for oxygen to diffuse across that alveolar capillary membrane, meaning that our oxygenation is going to improve. And we also have increased alveolar surface area, which increases our diffusion of gases, which increases our oxygenation. PEEP is good. The only downside to PEEP is that if you use a ton of it, you are going to greatly reduce their venous return. Um, but we can assist that patient with the use of a presser. Do not ever forfeit oxygenation for mean arterial pressure. Do not ever forfeit PEEP for MAP. And we are going to always add a presser if we need to do so. So there are two things that we need to do for our patient to increase oxygenation, and we are going to use increased flow, meaning increased FiO2, and increased PEEP. All right, so now we know the tools that we need to use in order to pre-oxygenate somebody well. We need to use a nasal cannula, and we need to use a bag valve mask. And now let's get to the actual physical checklist itself. 
So I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth between the two partners and and different, I think different, um, you know, different companies, different organizations, they use different checklists. And I'm not going to go deep exactly into every single thing that is on our checklist. I'm sure that's probably a little bit proprietary, but but I will get into the flow that we use um, in order to properly pre-auctionate somebody and um, and operate within a two-person team and utilize uh, maybe a firefighter or two as your additional resources. So first things first, we walk into the room, we see this patient who, you know, has status seizures and and we get there and the paramedic on the ground was like, hey guys, I had to give, you know, five milligrams of Versed and then another five and then another five and called the physician. They told me to give another five. And so this guy's had 20 milligrams of Versed and the seizures just stopped. And uh, you're looking at the patient, um, the ground providers are currently bagging him because he's completely apneic. And he, I mean, obviously he's a little postictal, but obviously he just got 20 milligrams of Versed. So he's pretty, uh, pretty toasted as well. So we are definitely going to be intubating this patient because it's not safe to transport this patient on their own. And it's completely inappropriate to bag somebody BLS for 30 minutes if you can help it otherwise, right? So um, if you are a ground provider and you are, you know, having to bag somebody and you're 35 minutes away from a hospital, remember that that is not appropriate to do that to a patient, to BLS bag a patient for that long. You're going to always hurt their lungs. You're going to blow up their belly. They're probably going to vomit. It's not appropriate to do that. So if you do not have RSI capabilities as a ground provider, then utilize air resources for a patient like that. All right, so what are our immediate actions? So first and foremost, obviously, we need to do our physical assessment and everything like that, which can be done really as you kind of walk into the room. And so I am going to be the intubator in this certain scenario, and my partner is going to be helping me out. And so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get my setup. I do not want to use the ground provider or whoever it was. I do not want to use their bag valve mask and their equipment. It's probably going to be a little bit different than mine, and uh, the equipment that we carry has, um, you know, some really specific things that you know, obviously, our organization wants, but also what uh, the science tells us is probably the most appropriate stuff to do. And so, what that includes is it includes obviously the bag valve mask, it includes a nasal cannula, it includes a peep valve, so that way I can always put peep into here. I always want to be measuring their entitled CO two, so it includes some inline. Uh, entitled CO2. And then we're going to want to use some sort of, you know, antibacterial, antiviral filter, like a heat moisture exchanger that has a good um, antibacterial or excuse me, antiviral filter on it um, to prevent any aerosolization of, uh, you know, nastiness up into the air while we are having to ventilate this person. Well, I'm getting all that stuff though. Like my partner's got to get me some numbers, right? And so, and so my partner, I hopefully during this time is going to be getting me on the cardiac or getting the patient on the cardiac monitor um, while I am getting this bag valve mask set up, this, this kind of super BVM setup with a bag valve mask, with a peep valve, with a, um, uh, with entitled CO2, with a heat moisture exchanger filter, with a mask, all of that good stuff. And then once I've got all that stuff set up, I need to take over doing this mass control, right? And so there is, um, this will probably be the biggest uh, thing that I kind of say that might upset people, but bag valve mask ventilation is a two-person job. It's not a one-person job. It's a two-person job. The C&E grip is garbage. We shouldn't be doing it on anybody Never. There's really no circumstance when the CNE grip is appropriate to use on somebody in the field. 
We learned how to do the CNE grip from anesthesiologists who do it in a perfect environment while already assessing their patient's airways well before they have to do any type of airway intervention for them. They have them in this static, stagnant environment uh, where they're able to prep their area very well and do a CNE grip while ventilating the patient. That is not our environment, and we should not be doing it like they do it. We should be doing the two thumbs down technique. So two hands are controlling the mask. So you have your two thumbs down on top of the mask, and you are physically using the rest of your fingers behind the jaw to do a jaw thrust. So your hands are really on their face in the same way that we would be doing a jaw thrust maneuver. Um, so you have two thumbs down on the mask and you are doing a jaw thrust. And then somebody else is going to squeeze the bag and that's what your ground providers um, or that's what your you know EMT or firefighter can help you do. Um, <clears throat> but we should never, ever, 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 ever be doing the CNE grip and using the bag valve mask as a one person job. If you look, uh, or if you're interested in like all of the visuals and everything like that, I have a similar lecture to this on my YouTube channel that I made for my organization, and um, and goes to show you how different the glottic view is for uh, patients when you do the CNE grip versus the two thumbs down jaw thrust technique. And the CNE grip is just garbage. It really is. It's just not a good way to do it. So we should stop doing that. All right, so um, uh, that I'm sure felt a little ranty. It even felt a little ranty to me. But uh, so we're going to take a little, uh, or excuse me, we're going to take immediate mask control using our bag valve mask that's got a peep valve, our entitled CO2, and our HME, making sure that we have our nasal cannula underneath at 15 liters per minute as well. And so the patient, ideally, when we put the mask on and we do that two thumbs down technique, um, uh, and we've got a total of 30 liters per minute of flow between our cannula and our bag valve mask, and we've got 10 or 15 a peep on there, like our patient should be saturating perfectly within a short amount of time. But for some reason, sometimes they just like decide that they don't want to saturate immediately and awesomely well. And why? Why can they not saturate perfectly with 30 liters per minute of flow and 15 a peep. Um, and it's almost always due to an improper level of positioning um, of their airway. And so once you take immediate mass control, now we need to start thinking about how we're going to appropriately oxygenate the patient. And there are a couple things that we really need to keep in mind in order to oxygenate the patient. And this is on the checklist as well, right? So you have the setup, and now we do more of a control of the mask. And in controlling the mask, we need to appropriately oxygenate them. And so the first things first is we need to properly position the airway. And remember that the CNE grip, making them like look up toward the ceiling um, or look at your belly button, that's not the way that we should be doing some, um, some positioning. We need to be doing that. Um, that jaw thrust maneuver. And so to help us do the jaw thrust maneuver, we should be placing that patient in the sniffing position. So if you imagine somebody lying on their back, we need to be doing that jaw thrust in a way that it physically is going to lift their head off of the ground. Um, and we are going to be placing the level of their ear up at the level of their sternal notch where the manubrium is. And so you're physically going to be extending their head forward um, and placing them into that sniffing position. You should then be placing something like towels or pillows or something underneath their head and neck and maybe the tops of their shoulders in order to fill that void. But that is how you properly position the airway for intubation. And proper positioning, positioning that ear 
up to the level of their sternal notch or sternal line, um, as long as obviously there's no significant C-spine trauma, um, that will double your chance of first pass success. Proper positioning doubles your chance of first pass success. So if you forget every other thing inside of this lecture, don't forget that. That proper positioning is the most important thing that we can be doing. All right, so the second thing that we are going to be really focusing on is we are physically focusing on raising that mandible up into the mask. So we're not pushing the mask onto the face, we are raising the mandible into the mask. Obviously, we want to make sure that we have some sort of airway adjunct in place to help us keep that tongue down in a way. So, preferably an OPA if you have to. You can also do some NPAs as well. Um, but OPAs are, are uh, uh, the gold standard. Um, making sure that we are getting end tidal CO2 with every single breath, and if we aren't getting end tidal CO2 with every breath, we need to check the seal on our mask. We also need to check the positioning of the patient's airway. We want to make sure that we've got that OPA in place. And then we want to make sure that we've got all of our oxygen sources. So we've got our 15 centimeter, or excuse me, we've got our 15 uh, liters per minute on our cannula, our 15 liters per minute on our bag valve mask, and then we have our 15 centimeters of water pressure of PEEP. So if we have our 15, 15, 15, we put an OPA in there, we're properly doing a jaw thrust maneuver, and we're placing that patient's head into the proper sniffing position, placing that ear up to the level of their sternal notch, that patient will start to oxygenate well, as long as they don't have a significant tension pneumo or gastric distension, in which case we are going to need to fix those two problems if they are present. While I'm doing that stuff, while I'm starting to really kind of optimize their oxygenation, my partner should be getting some IVs in place, should be looking at their shock index, potentially giving them some fluids, potentially giving them blood, potentially giving them some pressors if their vital signs warrant something like that. So they're getting IV access or IO access, and they are mitigating the hypotension um, aspect or the hemodynamic aspect of the hop killers, which we'll talk about actually in a further podcast. So me as the intubator, I am now oxygen, or excuse me, I am optimizing their oxygenation through thumbs down masking, raising the mandible, proper positioning, and doing my two sources of oxygen with my PEEP source as well. And now I need to start thinking about the other vital sign. I need to start thinking about their CO2. So I'm addressing their O2 in this moment. Now I have to start looking at their CO2. So I'm going to be optimizing their ventilations now as well. And really all that that means is, do I need to squeeze the bag or not? Do I need to have somebody physically squeeze the bag? Is the patient spontaneously breathing? Is their spontaneous breathing adequate? Um, what is their entitled CO2? If it's 60, then their entitled CO2 is too high and their respiratory rate is not clearly adequate. So I'm going to have somebody help me and squeeze the bag periodically. I, I don't need to squeeze the bag 16 times a minute. I just need to squeeze the bag, you know, once every, you know, eight seconds or so. Um, I think that if you look at most textbooks, they would say squeeze the bag once every five to six seconds. Um, Whatever, whatever you want to do, as long as you're maintaining a eucapnic CO2, um, you know, in the absence of any acidosis or anything like that. So, do we need to squeeze the bag? And that's really all dependent on the end tidal CO2 and the patient's spontaneous respiratory rate. It's a clinical decision that you're going to need to make of do you need to squeeze the bag or not? But a question for everybody do we always need to squeeze the bag? And the answer is no. 
Absolutely not. We don't always need to squeeze the bag. If this patient is spontaneously breathing, but they are not protecting their airway, um, you know, think some some liver patient that's like drowning in secretions, but they are otherwise breathing, you know, they just have ammonia levels that are through the roof and we need to intubate them for airway protection because they're they're gagging and gurgling on their on their saliva. Um they're going to oxygenate themselves well with a bag valve mask on and a PEEP valve on. And so what do we call that when we're delivering 30 liters per minute of flow through this and 15 a PEEP, right? If they're spontaneously breathing, all they're essentially getting is a ton of flow and then they're getting PEEP, but they are breathing on their own. So we don't need to breathe for them. And what do we call that? We call it CPAP, right? That patient's just on CPAP. We don't need to be providing BVM ventilations for every single patient that we're going to intubate, as long as they're spontaneously breathing and it's adequate and their CO2 level is is, is appropriate anyway. But if they're agonally breathing or they're bradypneic or their CO2 sucks, then yes, we're going to need to start squeezing that bag periodically and optimizing their ventilation, which equals their CO2 side. While they're doing that, your partner should be ideally setting you up for your intubation, um, you know, getting your your um, desired ET tube size, as well as one size bigger and one size smaller. They should be getting your laryngoscope with the desired blade and a backup blade. They should be getting an intubating adjunct like a bougie. If you guys use a rigid stylet like the co-pilot, then you guys should be using a rigid stylet as well. And we're getting that out as well. Making sure we have our tube securement device that um, is out, like the Thomas tube holder, uh, making sure that your suction is out and on and ready to go. And then very importantly, making sure that your backup airways are ready to go as well, like an iGel, or if you use King Airs or LMAs, using um, having one of those that is out and ready to be used in case of a failed intubation. And then finally, if you have the ability with your organization, we should also have like a crike kit out and ready as well. In case we have a failed intubation followed by a failed BLS airway, we need to be uh, very ready to cut the neck if we need to. All right, so we're using our proper equipment. We are taking control of the mask. We are optimizing our oxygenation. We're optimizing our ventilation. And now the very last kind of like, oh, right, we've been optimizing a bunch of stuff. And now the very last little O is that we are going to be observing for a difficult airway. So basically, this is having a plan for your airway. Do not go in blind. We need to be anticipating difficulties with the airway because that will set you up for failure. If you think that you're an amazing intubator, that's all good and dandy, but then you go into the airway and weren't anticipating blood in the airway, weren't anticipating that they were, or didn't, didn't really consciously think like, man, this, this lady's 450 pounds and she's 411. She's, um, you know, she's like a ball. Um, and so she's going to be a very anterior, very superior airway. And that sucks, right? We want posterior inferior airways. Um, those are the ones that are easier to intubate. And so um, so you uh, need to have a plan for the airway. There's tons of different airway evaluations that people can use. A lot of people very frequently we use the uh, use the lemon assessment and that's um, and that's awesome. Um, but there's tons of different airway assessments out there, but do some sort of airway assessment. Um, don't just go in blind. 
So, you know, is there trauma? Is the patient obese? Are there any obstructions in the airway? Uh, what's their 332? Their 332 is probably the, the one that I use the most. Um, uh, you know, of the patient's sized fingers, they should be able to fit three of their own fingers inside of their mouth. This is obviously a guesstimation because not only should you not grab their own fingers and plunge them into their mouth, but you should definitely not take your three fingers and put them into the mouth. But you should be able to fit three fingers inside of the mouth as far as, um, you know, vertically. Um, so that way it, it should shows you that their mouth is able to open. They're not all tetanied or clamped down. You should be able to fit three fingers underneath their chin before you hit the front of the thyroid cartilage. So that means that they have a posterior airway. If you can only fit one finger behind that the mandible underneath the chin and, um, and you're already hitting the thyroid cartilage with only two fingers, then that person's got a really anterior airway. And then the two of 332 is that you should be able to fit two fingers above the thyroid prominence until you hit the hyoid bone above it. So that means that their airway is going to be inferior or kind of low, right? And that's what you want. So you want a, a, a posterior and inferior airway. That means it's going to be really easy to make that corner around the tongue and intubate the person. If they have a really superior anterior airway, like a short fat person, then, um, then you've got to make a big, big corner. You've got to make a, you know, a 105 degree angle corner to get around there, around their tongue. And, and that patient's going to be really difficult to intubate. All right. So you have now reached the period of time where your oxygen saturation is at hundred percent. You've decided whether you're going to squeeze the bag or not. You've assessed that airway. Your partner's got you on the monitor, got your patient a couple lines, maybe started a presser, maybe blood or whatever the patient's scenario may be for this particular scenario with a seizure patient. You know, maybe the blood pressure is a little light because, uh, because of all of that for said. So patient's probably getting a little fluid may need a presser to bridge them through the intubation. If that for said's really starting to catch up to them hemodynamically. And so a short-term presser is um, uh, maybe going to be really beneficial for them. Obviously we're not giving this patient blood, right? Um, but, uh, uh, but they've also um, set you up for your intubation. They've got the suction out on and ready and they've drawn up your medications. We're going to go ahead and talk about RSI next week and DSI and post-intubation sedation. And so I'm not going to address all of that stuff today, but what I'll say is that, um, you know, I, I, I think that the most common thing that you'll see out in the field is people inducting with ketamine and using rocuronium for, um, for, uh, their, you know, mid-range, um, paralytic. Uh, and that is, you know, that's what I think that I, I you know, I have the most experience with ketamine and rocuronium, but um, I, if you're using something different, then as long as you can, you know, justify that to yourself, um, then, uh, then that's awesome. There are, you know, a hundred different ways to skin a cat. Um, well, hopefully not. That that's weird. Uh, there shouldn't be that many ways to skin a cat, but um, there is definitely more than one way I would imagine. So now we've reached the part or the point where we're about ready to start pushing our drugs and um, and our oxygen saturation is looking pretty good. And this is the trap that most people fall into is they're ready to go. So they push some drugs and you didn't give the patient enough time to denitrogenate, to wash that nitrogen out of their alveoli. Um, you didn't give them enough time. And so at this point, when the oxygen saturation is now 100%, we've got our meds drawn up, we're getting ready to go. This is when it is imperative to have some somebody physically time three minutes, time, time you for three minutes 
at a saturation of 100% to do some mindful denitrogenation of the patient. They, it takes a long time for nitrogen to wash out of those alveoli. Nitrogen are big fat molecules, so it takes time to wash that stuff out of the alveoli. And we need to physically time it. We suck at keeping time um, if we're just trying to do it mentally. And so we need somebody to take their phone out and physically time three minutes. Just ask Siri. I have to say that really quietly because my phones are next to me. All right, so three minutes is a long time though, right? So what are we going to do during this three minutes? And what we're always going to do during this three minutes is we are going to involve everybody else inside of our nightmare. We are going to talk about what our plan is for this airway, what happens if it fails, and then what happens if that fails. And this is what a plan sounds like. And this is what I teach um, to, to every flight nurse and flight paramedic that comes into our program. Um, and, uh, and this is really what we're looking for pretty much verbatim to come out of everybody's mouth. All right, guys, so as soon as this three-minute time limit is up, we're going to go ahead and get our meds on board, and we are going to attempt an intubation. I need some of you guys to keep your eyes on this cardiac monitor and let me know if at any time the oxygen saturation drops below 93% or I've reached about 30 seconds of intubation. If I am unable to successfully intubate this patient during that time or these SATs start to drop below 93%, we are going to pull out, we are going to re-oxygenate this patient, and we are going to do another three minutes of denitrogenation. We're then going to do a second attempt. If we fail a second attempt, we are going to go to a backup airway. We use the IGEL as our BLS airway. As long as the oxygen saturation stays above 93 and as long as the CO2 is able to be normalized with a or with the um, with the eye gel, then we'll go ahead and get out of here. However, if we cannot oxygenate or ventilate the patient well with the eye gel, we are going to go ahead and cut the neck and do a surgical crike. Does anybody have any questions? And that is the plan, right? That's always the plan, forever and for always. Two intubation attempts followed by a backup airway followed by cutting that neck um, or followed by a crike. And so that plan does not change. We do not deviate from the plan. That is the plan. But oftentimes ground providers don't know the plan, right? And so we need to involve them. And now every single person in that room and every single person in the back of that ambulance knows exactly what they need to do in order to, um, uh, you know, in order to be a contributing member uh, to um, to the situation, right? And so that is the plan. All right, so we've now pushed the medications. We've gone through our three minutes of mindful denitrogenation. Everybody's on board, and now we finally get to the point where we are going to deliver the tube. So we have set up all of our BVM stuff. We've taken over mass control. We've optimized our oxygenation, followed by oxygen, or excuse me, followed by optimizing our ventilation. We've made sure that we have a plan for the airway, and we've done three minutes of mindful denitrogenation. My partner, on the other hand, has placed him on the monitor, gotten IV access, made sure my perfusion looks good, set me up for my intubation, and they've gone ahead and drawn up all the medications that we're going to use for RSI. They have um, communicated our emergency plan for our intubations followed by BLS followed by crike. And now they've pushed the medications and we are going to be delivering the tube and, um, and making sure that we're safe doing so. The number one reason for reported first pass failure when it comes to intubation is crap inside of the airway when you try to go into it. So there's three reasons that people fail intubations. Um, uh, in, in my experience, and there's absolutely no science for, uh, for me to say uh, to back this up, but there are three reasons that I see people failing intubations. Uh, 
The number one reason is crap inside of the airway, and that actually that is a real thing. The number one reason for reported first pass failure is blood vomit or secretions in the airway. The number two reason is that you did not properly position the person prior to intubation. You did not place their ears up to their sternal notch, placing them into the sniffing position prior to intubation. If you fail to do that, you will cut your success, your first pass success, in half by failing to properly position them. And then the third reason is that we get lost inside of that airway. It's amazing. The mouth seems really, really tiny until you're inside of it with a laryngoscope. And then all of a sudden, there's a lot of freaking real estate in there. And unfortunately, it all looks the same, right? It's all pink. And so it's really easy to get lost inside of that airway. And this brings us to kind of the last thing. So A, we need to lead with suction. The first thing that comes into the mouth is suction, not the laryngoscope blade. But B, <clears throat> laryngoscopy is a lie. Laryngoscopy is not a real thing. We do not search for the larynx immediately, right? Maybe when we were in school, we were taught like, yeah, you put the laryngoscope in, you lift toward the toes, and then you should see the vocal cords. Like that crap does not happen in real life. We never, ever, ever see the cords immediately. And if we try to go deep like that, anticipating seeing the cords, oftentimes what's going to happen is we're going to lift that laryngoscope out of the way, you know, toward the toes. And we see pink and we freak out because we don't know exactly where we are. I'm like, damn, am I too deep? Am I too shallow? Am I just halfway down the tongue? Have I, am I in the esophagus already? Like, where am I? I have no idea. And so laryngoscopy is a lie. What intubation truly is, is uvuloscopy. We need to be looking for the uvula, the little dangly in the back of the throat. And so if I place the, or if I pass the blade onto the front, you know, the anterior third of the tongue and I open the mouth um, or open the mouth fully, I should be able to see the uvula. If I see the uvula, I know exactly where I am in that airway, and I can travel a little further down the tongue at you know kind of kind of easing the blade down the down the slope of the tongue until I can see the tip of the epiglottis. Once I see the tip of the epiglottis, I'm I'm feeling pretty good about where I am in the airway. I've still got the suction in the airway as well, making sure that none of the secretions are going to be mucking up my camera or my light if I'm using a video laryngoscope with the camera. Um, once I see the epiglottis, that's awesome. Now I'm going to either pass into the molecula or I'm going to grab the whole epiglottis and just move it up and out of the way. And at that point, I should be able to start to see the arytenoids, which are those little nodes between your esophagus and your glottis. And if I see the arytenoids, I'm golden, right? Because if I can if I can identify my arytenoids, I know that anything below that is esophagus and anything above that is where I want to be. So even if I never see the glottis, if I'm using direct laryngoscopy and I've got a big anterior superior airway, I may never see the glottis really well, but as long as I can identify and see the arytenoids, I'm good. Um, but ideally, once we see the arytenoids, we can kind of, we can, um, with the laryngoscope, generally, if you do a small push and kind of kind of pivot a little bit toward the left, you'll, you'll take that um, tongue completely out of the way and you'll be able to see those nice vocal cords and that nice glottis. But the point is start shallow and work deep. All right, so we see that vocal cord. We've passed the tube in through the vocal cords. We have inflated the cuff. And then so important, the last aspect of the checklist after delivering the tube is that we need to not pull out. Don't pull out. Um, we are going to make sure that we maintain a visual on that ET tube until the cuff is inflated. We have assessed lung sounds. We have given our first several breaths, and we have 
positive waveform capnography. This is the most difficult thing for um, for uh, for most paramedics. This was the hardest thing when I was learning an airway checklist to do because I was so used to my entire um, ground career. You know, you have the laryngoscope in their mouth, and you pass the tube into in through the vocal cords. You inflate the cuff, and you immediately pull the laryngoscope out. And we should not be doing that. Uh, make sure that we maintain visual. There's no rush to get out of out of that airway. Now that the tube's in, we could keep that laryngoscope in there forever. Um, that's obviously not reasonable or feasible, but um, but uh, we could for sure if we kept our hands on the tube. Um, and so there's no rush to get out of there. Stop pulling out. We need to stay in there until we have good waveform capnography and we have clear lung sounds or, or, or lung sounds and we've had our first couple breaths in through that, um, through that tube. Once you've done that, we can secure the tube, make sure that the cuff is inflated, make sure the depth is appropriate, and now we can transition either back to a bag valve mask or back to a uh, or onto a ventilator. But that is how you properly pre-oxygenate a patient using a checklist. I encourage you, if you work in a place that does not utilize an airway checklist, look them up, or you can get in contact with me. I can help you put one together, um, or you can put one together yourself. But if you are using a checklist, that means that you are using consistency and you are going to have better outcomes for your patients in the field. So use a checklist, make sure that we're proper pre or properly pre-oxygenating our patients. And next week, we are going to come back, take a look at the hop killers, the other reasons why somebody will die besides hypoxia is that hypotension and acidosis. And we're going to take a look at those here in about a week. But thanks everybody for stopping by. Um, if you need to get in touch with me, remember my email is kaisercpr at gmail.com. That's k-i-s-e-r-c-p-r at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys in about a week.